This episode of Alyssa Milano Sorry Not Sorry contains a frank discussion of sex trafficking, including child sex trafficking, and a graphic description of a non-consensual sexual act. Some listeners may find this disturbing. Discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Fighting sex trafficking is a cause that I am passionate about, and our guest this week has made it her life's work. Rachira Gupta is a former journalist and founder of Apne App, an NGO that works to end child sex trafficking. She's the author of the acclaimed new novel, I Kick and Fly, which is based on her experiences. It is as sinister as it gets. People buying or selling children for sex. An awful situation. My story is that I was trafficked from the ages of 10 to 14. And what I think is really relevant now is not the super gory details that a lot of people want me to talk about, but rather how it happened. After college, I wanted to work as a teacher. I will become a doctor. I've got a small job in photo editing that I plan to work on in the future. Our work focuses on running community classrooms and then sponsoring children in mainstream schools and colleges. So far, we have educated more than 2,000 children, breaking the cycle of intergenerational prostitution in those families. Hello, I'm Ruchira Gupta. I'm the author of a book, I Kick and I Fly which is about a young girl who escapes the sex trade by becoming a Kung Fu champion. I'm an activist and I work to end sex trafficking because I believe in a world in which no human being is bought or sold. Sorry, not sorry. Ruchira, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Let's just start out by telling us a bit about who you are and what you do. I'm an artist, author, and activist. And my dream is to create a world in which no human being, especially children, are bought or sold. I'm a lifelong activist. I work to end sex trafficking, girl by girl, law by law. I support and have founded an NGO in the red light areas of India where I educate children of prostituted women so that they are not trapped in intergenerational prostitution and sold into prostitution themselves. I also work very closely with the United Nations in New York and with the US government, the French government, the Swedish government and Indian government to create better laws and policies so that girls and women are not punished for sex trafficking, but the sex buyers and the traffickers, the pimps and the brothel keepers are punished. And I do that in every way I can by running an NGO, which provides direct services to girls, runs community classrooms inside red light areas, and also writing policy papers, teaching a course on human trafficking at New York University, and also writing books, making art, 
which can amplify the voices of survivors. You know, I feel like most activists that make this their life work or whatever their cause is have one moment where they made the decision that this was going to be their focus and this was going to be how they contributed to the world. Did you have that one moment? And if so, what was it? I used to be a journalist and I was hiking through the hills of Nepal when I came across rows of villages with missing girls and I couldn't understand where the girls were. So I asked the men who were sitting and drinking tea and playing cards and some of them were hostile, but a few answered. And they said, don't you know, they all are in Bombay. Now, Mumbai, as it's now known, was 1400 kilometers away. And these villages were remote hamlets in the Himalayas. So I could not understand how that could be. And as a good journalist, I decided to follow the trail. I ended up in the brothels of Bombay. And there I saw little girls locked up in small rooms with iron bars in the window and being used by multiple men every night for years. As a woman, I was angry. As a journalist, I wanted to do something about it. As a citizen of India, as a citizen of the world, I couldn't believe that something like this existed in my lifetime, in my generation, in my world. So I wanted to do something about it. My first response, Alisa, was to tell the story because I was a journalist. I ended up making a documentary, The Selling of Innocence, on the trafficking of girls from Nepal to Mumbai. But making of the documentary itself changed my life. When I was filming inside the brothels, I spoke to the women and they broke their silence very courageously, overcame their shame, their fear, sometimes even guilt because that's how they were treated because they wanted to save their daughters. And I filmed them and at one point, a man pulled out a knife at my throat and he said, I'm not going to let you film here. And I was inside the brothel. I had no bodyguards, no police help, nothing. And the room had just one narrow door, which he was blocking and he had a knife in his hand. But there were women I was interviewing in the room with me and they surrounded me and they told him, if you've got to kill her, you've got to kill us first. And that's when I realized the importance and the power of women's collective action because the man realized it was too difficult to kill so many women and he went away and my life was saved. So something happened inside me at that moment. And then I won an Emmy for Outstanding Investigative Journalism for the documentary. So I came to New York and I was in the Broadway Marquis Hotel and I'm standing on stage and everyone was applauding and I could see the bright lights. But all I could see beyond the bright lights were the eyes of the women and that they wanted to save their daughters. I thought I want to use my Emmy and my documentary not to build a career, but to make a difference. So that was that moment of realization. And I decided to go back to Mumbai with my award and the documentary and ask the women what they wanted. That's how my journey began. I would love for you to just paint the picture a little bit more about maybe what kind of conditions they were living in, who these girls and women were? Will you just paint the picture as an artist for us? These women were living in a row of rooms, like sometimes very small rooms, four foot by four foot with a bed jammed in. The bed is kept on bricks and the children actually sleep under the bed or play on the floor when a customer comes to visit the women. And a person like a pimp or a brothel manager sits at the door taking money for every customer who walks in. 
They are little wooden buildings in a row of 13 lanes which crisscross each other near the station in Bombay. And there are like 20 rooms to one toilet. And there's always constant noise blaring with music playing from the mics, rats on the floor, the smell of stinking toilets and the smell of dried sperm and sweat and people quarreling and haggling and vendors walking up and down selling alcohol, drugs, everything, and children crying from hunger or lack of sleep. And this is like a constant 24-hour noise because the brothels never shut down. Kamatipur, in the centre of Mumbai, one of the biggest and most notorious red light districts in all of Asia, crisscrossed by streets upon streets of brothel houses. It's believed at least 20,000 girls are working as prostitutes here. Many of them are underage, and most of them trafficked from the countryside. And customers can walk in when they like. So, you know, when I went back to the brothels, Alisa, and I went with my award and the thing, there was no place to sit. So we actually sat on a bed in one of the rooms. And I asked the women, I said, here I am. I've told your story, broken the silence. This award is yours. So they said, we don't want just the award. What's the award going to do? You have to help us. And I asked them, I said, what do you want? And they said, we want to save our daughters from the same destiny that we had. And I said, how can we do that? I don't know how. I'm just a journalist. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a social worker. I'm not a lawyer. So how can we do that? And imagine us sitting in this tight little room and there's danger all around us, yet we're subversive enough to imagine a different future. Just think of that moment, how it's a goosebumpy moment. And so I was thinking, I said, okay, I'll ask the women. And they said, you have two things we don't have. You have English and you have access to money and networks. So you can help us. So I said, okay, what do you want? And they had four dreams at that time. The first dream was they said they wanted education for their daughters. Because they knew that school would help their children from being prostituted. The second thing they said they wanted was they said they wanted a room of their own. And if you were sitting in that hellhole with that noise and the stink and the suffocation there. So I said, a room of your own, what does that mean? And they said, where anybody can, we can sleep safely. Our children can sleep safely and nobody can walk in when they want or reach out for our children after they finish sexually assaulting us. And I thought, yes, of course you want a room of your own. Their third dream was they wanted a job in an office. And if you were sitting there, you couldn't even imagine what a job in an office could be. So I said, what does that mean? So they said somewhere where we have old age pension where nobody beats us, there's no violence, we have fixed working hours and can sleep fully at night. Because insomnia was rampant, a customer can just come anytime. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. It's terrifying to not feel safe. And how do you sleep when you don't feel safe? Exactly. And then the fourth dream was they said they wanted punishment of those who had bought them and sold them. And they used the word those who had brokered away our dreams. So that became our business plan, the four dreams. And we quickly rented a community center, a room in an old school, hired a teacher, put a straw mat on the floor and began to educate the children. And we called the NGO Apne Aap. It's pronounced a bit like up and up. And it means self-action in Hindi. And we used the model of organizing in the small circle the mandala as it's known in Buddhism, we use that because that's how I was rescued by the women. They had saved my life before I did anything for them. So we use that as a model for collective action. And we began to educate the children. Once the children were ready for mainstream school, we went as a group of women to the local principal and said, admit the children in your school. And he said, oh, we can't. The other parents will object. These are children of prostitutes. So together we begged, cajoled and said, these children are children. And finally, the principal relented. And fast forward, this was 1996. Fast forward, we have educated thousands of children from red light areas across India through school and college. And we have helped more than 20,000 women exit systems of prostitution, build their own houses, move out, start livelihoods. And in one place in India where there was a nomadic tribe which was trapped in intergenerational prostitution, it's a small town on the border of Nepal called Forbisganj in India. And there used to be 72 brothels where I began work. Now there are just two. And the traffickers are in jail. And those brothel huts have been taken over by the women and turned into homes and businesses for themselves where they run small tea shops and masala making shops. And the kids are in school. In the big scheme of things, why do you think in all of your work, in all of the research you've done, why have women just always been subjugated? Why are women the property of men to do with what they choose? I think because we have the power to reproduce. And men feel slightly jealous. And also, they feel that we should be producing cheap labor to serve them. So either we should become cheap labor ourselves or produce cheap labor for them. And for that, they need to control our bodies. And that is why they constantly try to subjugate us, because they know they cannot produce cheap labor. So what happens with men and women, men who are in this cult, you can say as a woman, they talk. But a guy is not looking at you as even all the way human. And this is what you have to understand. It's, there's a humanity issue here. You're like, why don't you hear me? Why don't you see my feelings? And they're like, but you're not all the way human. You're here for me. They have to have the vessels of our body to do so. And therefore, they constantly try to find different ways and means to control our body. Sometimes they use laws. Sometimes they use cultural practices. Sometimes they use outright force and violence. 
Sometimes they use religion as a way to shame us and make us feel guilty and control us. So they use many different methods and they create stories and narratives and rituals around that so that we too begin to believe it. You know, as a UNICEF ambassador, I've traveled all over the world. I was in India for three weeks, six months after the tsunami to see how the villages were rebuilding. But really, my point is simply that everywhere I've gone, it's the same struggle. And even in the countries where you think, like the United States of America, where we are built on freedom and equality, or so they project, although we know our founding fathers were slave owners and didn't include women in the Constitution, now we're seeing our rights being rolled back. And it just feels like this perpetual cycle of subjugation that as a feminist, as an activist, it's so exhausting. It's just exhausting. What keeps you going? What inspires you? Is it the individual stories? Do you have hope that we can actually change things? I have seen change in my own lifetime, Alisa which is what keeps me going because I know that we can succeed if we hang in there. And there are three things which keep me going. One is when I didn't know that I would succeed, right? So now in hindsight, I can say, oh, I succeeded with so many girls and so many women and changed this law. I didn't know when I was starting. And as our mutual friend Gloria Steinem says, that, you know, when you do something, you don't know if it's big or small, but you have to do it as if it matters. And only time will show. That is so true. I've seen that again and again. But what kept me going in the meantime till I saw the fruits of my efforts or the fruits of the efforts of my friends was these friendship circles. Because we would talk to each other and somebody would tell me I did this and this happened. So that kept me going. Also the strength and the humor and the community that you get feminists work together. That kept me going. Also what kept me going was books. I read a lot of books and I've seen stories about other women pioneers who succeeded, you know, the suffragists who fought for the right to vote. So it's all incremental, I believe. And right now, even now, I feel that what we are seeing right here, this desperate attempt to control our bodies is really a backlash because we have found our freedom and we are not going back. So it's like in domestic violence situations, when a woman is just about to leave a man, he takes away the car keys. He takes away the credit card because he knows she's leaving him. So he does his best to lock her up, but she's about to escape. So I think that's what's happening is that the women's movement has become stronger, wider, more broad-based, and we are more educated, we are more capable because we've broken, smashed a lot of ceilings. And I think this is the backlash that we are facing. If we don't give up, then we can carry on. And also you have to understand that authoritarian governments, and we know that this is happening across the world right now, along with the assault on women's bodies or the desire to take control of our bodies and our freedoms, they are questioning democracy fundamentally. So there's also an erosion of democracy. And I think the two are intertwined because fascism eroticizes violence. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that fascism is based on hierarchy and gender or authoritarianism. And democracies are participatory. They give everyone equal rights to vote, etc., etc. Where do they normalize hierarchy? They normalize hierarchy inside the family. Because it's as soon as we are born, 
that we learn that it's all right for one class of human beings to order and one to obey, one to get paid for their work, one not, one to seek approval and one to give approval. We begin to think that the head of the family is the only structure of power, right or wrong. And we begin to imagine that as the model of power. And we go out into the world to vote for such a head of the family. And gender actually digs a trench into our brain into which all other hierarchies fall. So then we accept the hierarchy of race as normal, hierarchy in my country of caste as normal. So this is the most fundamental of hierarchies, which is the other reason I feel that by controlling our bodies and this whole thing which is going on in America right now to take control of our choices, our bodies, etc., entrench that hierarchy again, which is shaking right now. Because then other hierarchies can succeed too. This philosophical disagreements can't be resolved in a way that a woman has no choice in the matter. And second, I don't think it would be a neutral position. The Constitution provides a guarantee of liberty. The court has interpreted that liberty to include the ability to make decisions related to childbearing, marriage, and family. Women have an equal right to liberty under the Constitution, Your Honor. And if they're not able to make this decision, if states can take control of women's bodies and force them to endure months of pregnancy and childbirth, then they will never have equal status under the Constitution. These are the reasons why I feel what's happening is going on right now. Will you explain for my listeners what are some of the root causes that lead to women and girls being sex trafficked? As far as socioeconomic situation, you know, just give everyone an education about that. I want everyone to shut their eyes for two seconds. And try and imagine the 13-year-old in a brothel in Bombay. What does she look like to you? She's poor. She's female. She's young. Between the ages of 9 and 13 in India and 13 and 15 in America. If she's standing here at a street corner, she's black. If she's in a brothel in India, She's probably from an oppressed caste. So that girl is the person I call the last girl, the most vulnerable of human beings because of her intersecting inequalities. So you can imagine why she is sex trafficked. Because she is vulnerable and she can be bought either through force, through fraud, through coercion. Sometimes trickery, seduction, and be told that I'll give you a little food, I'll give you love, I'll give you a roof over your head, I'll get you a job in the big city. And she could be controlled also by people and has no right to take decisions for herself or over her body. So that is one part of sex trafficking system. It's based on supply and demand. So the supply is formed of the last girls, the poorest of poor, the most vulnerable of human beings, and they are taken advantage of because of their vulnerabilities. On the other side, it is based on demand. There are men who want a young girl, they want a docile girl, they want a fair-skinned girl, they want a voluptuous girl. And they announce this on the internet, in their communities. And then there are the traffickers who take advantage and they know there's a profit in it. So they go around looking for these last girls. There are enough poor kids in the world that they go and buy and sell. 
Demand is one of the reasons why sex trafficking happens because there are men who want to dominate girls and they go around looking for it. And in some of the situations of prostitution, both in America and India and globally, they call the girls fresh meat. So trafficking is based on men's desire to dominate girls and sometimes even to have violent sex with the girls. The average age of a girl being sold into prostitution in India is between 9 and 13 and the United States between 13 and 15. That is the girl I'm talking about. You mentioned before the internet, and I'm wondering how technology has changed the way women and girls are trafficked. Of course, technology has become such an integral and huge part of our world, especially during COVID when we were isolated and we had to use technology to have a sense of connection and to function as humanity. But what that also did was that the kids who were sitting at home and didn't have a peer group to play with or go to school with, they were more and more online. And both with uh, social media, this fatal combination of social media and artificial intelligence scaled up what the traffickers were doing earlier by going physically into a poor slum to recruit a girl and then sell her in a brothel or a massage parlor in a brothel in Queens. Now it just became very pervasive everywhere because it could get into your home, into your study, into your bedroom, into your basement, into your garage. How would they do that? So AI can process huge amounts of data at fast speed. The traffickers really began to deploy AI to figure out what are the keywords. If kids said, I'm lonely, or if they said, I'm suicidal, or I'm fed up of my parents, or whatever. There were so many things that young people go through, teenagers. The AI people would begin to target these kids. So if they were boys, they would begin to groom them into becoming sex buyers or even, you know, victims for pedophiles, right? And they would suddenly, a 12-year-old boy would see a cartoon character pop up on his TV screen saying, want to have some fun with me? And two clicks later, he would watch her being penetrated in every part of her body, crying and saying, give me more. So what did he learn? He learned that sex is connected to violence and no means yes. So this is how they groom these potential sex buyers. And that sense of alienation and isolation grew more in the kids rather than ending it, but they didn't know that. And with girls, and especially girls in LGBTQI community people, they targeted them because they were anyway going through all kinds of issues at home because they didn't have a peer group at that time. And they began to, again, pick up these keywords. And there were chatbots and fake profiles and all of that on social media. Are you, you need affection? You're great. You're so pretty. Come, I'll talk to you. And then say, take your shirt off. I'm fine. And then blackmail, seasoning, grooming. There's nowhere safe anymore with the advancement of technology. I think about all the time, like, I remember being a little girl and walking down the streets in Manhattan with my mom. She was a fashion designer at the time and having men catcall her, feeling really unsafe, feeling, oh my God, this is horrible. And I remember actually having anxiety about it. But you could get away from it. You could shut the door. You could, I mean, this, of course, domestic violence is a whole other part of this, which you cannot escape. But I could, when I was a little girl, be at home and feel safe. Now, because of the internet, there's no place to feel safe because at any moment, women are subjugated, harassed, 
in such a vile way. And so I think it's made the problem so much more, not acceptable, but just like common. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is, that goes along with the fact that the sex buyers are talking about sex. They are talking about violent sex. In the meantime, we are not talking to our kids about sex and what is safe and anything, right? There's such a culture of silence. I think one of the biggest cultural wars in America is what should we talk to our kid about and what should we not? Jacksonville teacher Andrea Phillips specializes in helping third graders who struggle to read. Without a diverse variety of books that represent my students, I can't get them interested in books. Here's my book prison. Two weeks ago, as the state celebrated Literacy Week in schools, Phillips says she was told to pack up her classroom library. We were being directed until all books could be vetted and we could be sure that we were in compliance with the state laws. Duval County Public Schools, which includes Jacksonville, said it would conduct a formal review of all books. And if we don't talk about things to kids which matter to them, which are relevant in their life, we don't help them at all because we have to talk to them about things which are going on in their lives around them. Because only by doing so can we save their lives. Alisa, that's why I wrote the book, I Kick and I Fly, for all the whole world. And I started in America because I felt that, you know, sex trafficking is happening. Body shaming is happening. Bullying is happening. Kids are being sexually abused, but nobody talks to them about it. I chose young adult writing as my medium because I thought I want to talk to them before it happens to them or while it's happening to them, so they know that they are not crazy, the system is crazy, they should feel no fear, shame or guilt and be able to talk to each other and adults about it. So that's why I wrote I Kick and I Fly, because it's about how a young girl who's on the brink of being sold into the sex trade actually is mentored by a woman's right advocate and becomes a kung fu champ and escapes the sex trade. Now, all through the book, there are clues, of course, how to fight back, but it also discusses issues which adults don't discuss with children. And I really want I Kick and I Fly to be used as a tool where fathers can talk to their children, mothers can talk to their children, children can talk to each other, teachers can talk to kids in school. Because if we don't talk, we are going to let the traffickers operate in the darkness of silence. And why tell this story as fiction instead of as a journalist? Good literature has the power to move us much more than anything else. All my life, I've grown up reading books and I've always been drawn to stories and fiction. I was inspired by To Kill a Mockingbird. And I was inspired by Jane Austen's books, uh, but even more so uh, Louisa May Alcott when she wrote about little women. I wanted to be a journalist and a writer just like Joe. So literature has always got under my skin in a way that uh, facts have not. So literature tells the truth more powerfully. So I decided I would write the truth, but based as fiction, because I could write about emotions and feelings and the interiority of our lives. And I feel that will connect more with kids because so much is going on inside us as much as outside us. I think one of the things I Kick and I Fly does so well is that it demonstrates so many of the pressures that lead to sex trafficking from, like you said before, from poverty to community acceptance to the guilt she feels for what it costs her family to raise her 
in some ways, it almost seems inevitable that Hira will be trafficked. And do you think that is a statement on just generational trauma as much as it is just on societal norms? Absolutely. Poverty also, which is passed down intergenerationally and oppression, we don't understand. We say, oh, why can't so-and-so think more clearly? They have no understanding of generational trauma, generational poverty, generational oppression, which is why the understanding of what slavery can do in black communities, people don't have the imagination to reach there because only those who experience it can understand it. I'm trying to build this alliance of artificial intelligence against human trafficking because I feel that we can also deploy AI against human traffickers. If the human traffickers are doing it, we can do it better. And we can also use it to curb what is happening on social media. And I have some ideas. I've been trying to talk to the top minds in AI and some have been fantastic. But yesterday I was talking to a man who is a household name in AI. He was so sexist. I kept talking to him about sex trafficking. And you know what he kept talking to me about? He would say, oh, but these women are selling themselves because they want to get into some relationship with a billionaire. So these 17-year-old girls are selling themselves to billionaires. And I said, do you understand that's based on unequal income? And do you understand what the backstory behind the happy hooker is? She's got to smile because only then will somebody buy her. But there's hunger, there's homelessness, there might be even a trafficker controlling her behind it. I said, you don't want to know the backstory. And what did this, what did he say to you when you said that? He said, no, I'm a feminist. My mother's a PhD. Both my sisters are PhDs. He was so pathetic. And he had the gall to then tell me, I'll tell you a joke. And the joke was so offensive. He knew that I called him up to talk about sex trafficking, right? And recruit his brains to help me find an answer to that. And he made up the joke, obviously, because we don't know George Bernard Shaw's alive or dead. We have no idea. He says, George Bernard Shaw was sitting next to a woman at dinner and he asked the woman, will you sleep with me if I give you a million dollars? And the woman looked him up and down and said, yes. Then he said, oh, will you sleep with me if I give you $500,000? And she looked him up and down and said, I'm a poor student, yes. And then he looked at her and said, if I give you $5, will you do it? And she said, what kind of a woman do you think I am? And George Bernard Shaw, according to this guy, said that, Oh, we've already established that. We are just negotiating your price. And he had the guts to tell me that joke. And I said, do you realize how offensive you're being by saying that joke? Male entitlement is clear to me in this joke. The fact that you think that she's just negotiating the price and you're assuming it's so disgusting at every level. Guy shares his experience in writing. He's brave. If a woman shares her experience in writing, she's oversharing and she's she's over emotional or she might be crazy or watch out she'll write a song about you yeah well, that joke that. is there is that but that joke is so old and it's it's coming from a place of such sexism in your book there is violence all around hira and there's violence all around the women who you work with tell us about that 
about the violence that trafficked girls and women experience. They experience so much violence in any country in the world, in the United States or India, that now research is saying that trafficked women suffer from higher rates of PTSD than even returning war veterans. Kind of violence they can go through is from based on repeated body invasion, from skin abrasions to sexually transmitted diseases to the violence inflicted on the bodies of the men invading their bodies who sometimes pinch them, beat them, slap them, fracture their bodies. And then on top of that, think of all the stress of insomnia because you have to be available night or day for the customer. Think of the stress of repeated intimate contact with another human body. And these are multiple human bodies who may not have had a bath, who may have been disease-ridden. After COVID, we don't even want someone to cough near us. And this is such intimate contact. Then there is, of course, jaundice, tuberculosis, HIV, AIDS, repeated abortions, repeated suicide attempts, anger, depression. So much happens to a girl or a woman who's subjected to this multiple times. There's a line that Hira encounters in the book that I think is really important. Courage is contagious. How so? When Hira is expelled from school for stealing an egg which she wants to take home to her mother who's hungry and breaking stones on the highway, the other boys tease her and tell her we know where you're from and all of that. And she beats up that boy, breaks his tooth, but she's the one expelled from school. And uh, she doesn't know what to do. But just then, a woman's right advocate comes by and says that, I'm going to teach you to how to fight. You don't have to fight in this impulsive way, but channelize your energy and learn about the power of your body. She remembers that she had seen this woman give a speech at a women's rights rally. And she was inspired by the way she was talking about um, issues about women's emancipation and women's empowerment. So Hira says, okay, all right, I will. And then she almost wants to drop out of the Kung Fu program or even the desire to go back to school because she's scared and she's afraid that she'll be teased or beaten up. But then her mother says, no, you've got to school. And she watches her mother fight it out with her alcoholic father who wants to sell her in the cattle trade. She watches her cousin who's already sold into the cattle trade find some ways of smuggling money out to give to Hira and her brother so that they can get a snack, go to school, buy some textbooks or a pair of shoes. So she begins to see in the lives of the women around her courage. And that then makes her strong enough to fight back. And there is a moment, there's a chapter in the book where she actually talks about the fact that I am doing this, first she says for my mother, then she says I'm doing it for Miradi, her cousin. And then she says, actually, I'm doing it for myself. I want to kick and fly. So there's a transition and that courage is contagious from one woman to another. How can our listeners support your work? They can go to my website and donate to apneap.org. They can buy the book, I Kick and I Fly, and share it with a young adult they know. They can join all my campaigns. I have a pledge on my website, ruchiragupta.com, which I invite everyone to come and sign because not only will you be able to join a global movement against human trafficking, but you will also learn something by reading that pledge. And of course, I'm running a campaign addressed to U.S. Congress. 
asking them to equip schools with books and other resources so that parents and teachers can talk to kids about these issues. And finally, what gives you hope? So what gives me hope is for every girl who succeeds inside apne aap against all the odds she overcomes like Hira who's the main character in I Kick and I Fly there are real girls in my NGO in the red light areas of India and in the United States who have learned karate won gold medals and gone on to school finished college and are now running lives as doctors as lawyers even as police officers So the fact that they could succeed gives me hope and finally the greatest hope I draw is really from the feminist movement and from the circles of people that I keep forming and communities in the last month I've been traveling for the book to Atlanta Georgia to the Martin Luther King Center I went to a small bookstore called the Seat at the Table in Saratoga I went to speak with Vital Voices and Hillary Clinton was there and I'd met her in Beijing and then she'd visited my NGO in Calcutta. So the continuity of these friendships and support and the fact that there are parents, there are teachers, there are booksellers who are working in community holding on to get a book to a child to make sure she learns something which will give her courage and way to carry on a kid in Harlem. I went to the school in Harlem. the kids had read from the book and they were asking me questions and they came and hugged me after that i went to harrisburg in pennsylvania and there were three survivors who read from the book and responded saying how things are so similar in their area and how they see hope from the book they talked about the fact that hira had to fight for a pair of shoes and they said why couldn't someone give her 20 dollars shoes and they said this is exactly what's happening in america people don't listen to us So the fact that these survivors are speaking up also gives me hope. Well, Ruchira, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you, Elisa, for having me on. I've long admired everything you've stood for, and your courage is also contagious. When a child is born, the society teaches the child they can achieve whatever they want, they can dream whatever they want. This world is an oyster for them; they can go out and dream big. however whichever dream they want to dream but this is not true for all the children especially not true for a dark skin india girl who comes from mumbai's most infamous red light area called kamatipura the true evil which empowers sex trafficking and forced sexual slavery is the belief among its perpetrators that women and girls are property and not people it allows governments to look the other way traffickers to manipulate and enslave these girls and the purchasers of illicit sex to ignore whether the woman is there by her own choice or not it is a global problem and yes that means it exists here too in the united states where our own government is showing just how little autonomy we as women have over our bodies in I kick and fly. Ruchira hit upon one of the most effective ways to fight back against this evil by empowering girls. Whether it's with education, economic assistance, or even self-defense classes like Hira in her novel, Ruchira knows that once we have power, we're never giving it up. We'll never be looked upon as property again. 
It's all of our job to make sure this happens, that no girl, that no woman is trafficked anywhere in the world, and that the evil and weak men who participate are stripped of whatever power they had and left behind in a shameful past. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.